Our scripture reading today is from John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And welcome again to Christ Community. We're glad that you're here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors on our staff here. And as we continue worshiping together, uh, we've had a moment uh, now where we've been singing together, singing the truth of God's word over one another. Um, we've heard God's red word over us, read over us, and now we want to spend some time just thinking more deeply about what does this word from John's gospel mean for us. And I want to pray as we continue worshiping together for the Spirit's help in discerning that now. So let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the gift of your word. It is the word of life to us because it points us to the word of life, Jesus, and is the way that we build faith in him. So I pray that now as we look at these words that John has written for that purpose, that we might believe in Jesus and find life in his name, would that purpose for which he's written, which your Holy Spirit inspired him to write, would that happen for me, for us today, even now, as we think more closely about these words together? In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. What happens when Jesus disrupts the party? What happens when he disrupts the party? Last week, if you were with us and we looked at John chapter two, the first part of it, we saw Jesus at a wedding providing wine, a massive amount of wine, for a wedding party that had run out so that the party could keep going. Then we have this account today where it sort of seems like Jesus is actually shutting the party down. I don't know if you had this thought as you were listening to the text being read, but it kind of, is anyone else a little concerned where this passage is going as Jesus walks into the temple and starts flipping over tables, makes a whip, starts driving people and animals outside of the temple. It feels like a little bit of a, of a sharp turn, a contrast from where we were last week. And in, in many ways, this passage has often mis mis been misused to sometimes justify violence in, in Jesus' name, that, that you would sort of, well, hey, Jesus 
Jesus flipped over some tables. You know, sometimes we need to use violence to meet our ends. Uh, others have used this to sort of justify outrage. I've seen this on social media, kind of the sense of like, well, you know, even Jesus, you know, kind of, kind of lost it every now and again, and, and, you know, he had to tell it like it was. And so if I sound off on, on social media occasionally, like someone's got to just tell the truth as it is. But sort of on the other side of that, if people were reacting against it, I said, well, so this passage, we have to explain it away. Maybe this, Jesus didn't actually do this. Maybe um, this is just kind of this really one-off historical event, and there's nothing that really applies for our lives today from this passage. And just kind of been dismissed as, as having any relevance for our Monday lives. So the question is, what do we do when Jesus goes from being the life of the party to being the party crasher? Which is what we have happening here when he goes from bringing the wine at the wedding to, to driving people out of the temple, and again, it feels jarring, those two accounts if you read them back to back. Especially, I know many of you are in various studies here at church right now studying the book Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, which is a wonderful book, but maybe you're wondering, okay, yeah, how does Jesus clearing out the temple, making a whip, flipping over tables, how does that fit with this portrait of gentle and lowly that Jesus describes himself as in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. So we'll look at that in a, in a minute later on in the passage. The question here is, what do we see about who Jesus is and what it means to embrace and follow him? Because there is a reason that John includes this particular episode in his gospel. So we know that Jesus did and said a lot more things than any of the gospel writers could have possibly written down. That tells us then that what is included here is here on purpose, that these gospel writers have selected these particular events carefully with a purpose in mind. And John in particular tells us that purpose at the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, uh, he tells us this is the reason that I'm writing. And let me just read this for you because we're going to keep coming back to this. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, there are all kinds of things Jesus said and did. You could fill a whole world with books about that stuff. But why I've written down these things he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The idea of the Christ is he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the true king that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So who is Jesus in this passage? Why has John selected this particular moment to record and placed it here? And how does it add to our understanding of what he's like? Or, or put another way, how is this episode that John records, how is this good news for us? Because the Gospels are all about communicating good news. That's what the word gospel means. How is this passage good news for you, for me, for others? Well, that's what we want to explore as we take a closer look at John chapter 2. So John tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, and if you haven't already, I encourage you to grab one of the pew Bibles, open it back up to John 2. If you brought a Bible or just pull up your phone, type in John 2 into Google, you will find a passage, uh, a website that will show that passage to you. But in, in verse 12, John tells us that Jesus goes, he's at Cana, where the wedding, where he makes, you know, all this wine. And then it says he goes from Cana down to Capernaum. And I have a, a map here, it's really small, I just want to give you give a general sense. So Cana is the little one there, and then the loop arrow that kind of actually points up on the map uh, goes to Capernaum. Now that might confuse you, because John says he goes down to Capernaum, but 
it's north on the map. And so this is what's key. When you hear the, the language of down and up in the Bible, it usually is referring not to north and south, that's what we tend to think of, but to elevation. So Cana's at a higher elevation. So Jesus is going down from Cana to sea level at the Sea of Galilee. And this is where John is then going, or Jesus is going to spend kind of, this is his home base. You know, he was born in Nazareth, but the other gospel writers tell us that Capernaum was kind of his home base for much of his ministry in these kind of three years as he's doing this rabbi, messiah project in the second kind of part of his life after having spent most of it being a carpenter. Then, and this is again where this elevation thing comes in, next John tells us that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, which is down at the bottom of the map, but he goes up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is higher. Uh, and in the biblical imagination, Jerusalem is, is always up uh, because it's kind of the high point of where God's presence is at. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But Jesus then goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, the layout of Jerusalem here, I have a map of that as well. This is kind of the city of Jerusalem, and right at the heart of that city, that's where the red box there, is the temple and the temple complex, which is the heart of Jerusalem. It's the heart of the Jewish political life, the religious life. You can't even really separate those. We have categories in kind of a modern Western enlightenment that you kind of sort of have politics here and religion one. That category does not exist in the Greco-Roman world. So the center of religious, political power, all that is at the temple. And Jewish people and non-Jewish people from all over the known world, they travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. And a whole industry has developed at this time, in the first century, around the temple to provide animals to sacrifice the temple and money to be changed um, at the temple. And there's a, this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is a practical service to people because if you were bringing an animal to sacrifice at the temple, and let's say you lived way up north and you lived in Capernaum or you lived in Cana or you lived even further away, it's a lot of work to bring a goat or a sheep or some other animal with you on that journey all the way to Jerusalem. So there was a system that was set up where you had people who would sell those animals there at the temple so you could just sell an animal at home, get the money for that, bring it there, and then you wouldn't have to take the animal with you. Now, you also had to change your money because you had uh, Roman denarii and you had the, the Greek or the Attic drachma were common currencies, but the temple, you paid a tax and part of the temple was, was funded by that tax, but you could only pay that in a Tyrrhenian coinage. And I have a, a yes, yeah, so these are archaeologists, you had to change your money for a Tyrrhenian um, shekel is what that was called. It was the only money that was permitted in the temple. And again, so these people, these money changers, uh, these merchants who are selling animals, they're providing a good service. And we're going to see in a minute, it's not that what they're doing so much, even though there is some maybe evidence from the other Gospels that there are some unjust practices in how they're doing it, but it's not so much what they're doing, but where they're doing that it's the problem. And again, this happened all year round, but this moment of Passover, this is like Black Friday for these merchants and money changers. And this is the high point of the season. Most people are crowding in to this time. And Jesus crashes the party. Look at verse 13 and following. How, this is how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this moment in the message. He says this, Jesus found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks were also there in full strength. And Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. And that's when his disciples remembered the scripture. Zeal for your house 
will consume me. It's a reference from one of the Psalms, Psalm 69. They remember, zeal for your house will consume me. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus do this? And it's not because Jesus is anti-business or anti-commerce, right? In fact, you know, he, his father, Joseph, ran a carpenter, was a small business owner, ran a carpenter shop. Jesus was a tradesperson as a carpenter. So Jesus is not anti-business. He's not anti-trade. Somehow, ESV, I think, has a, turning my father's house into a house of trade. It's, again, not Jesus is fundamentally against these things, but where they're happening and so Jesus is attacking the whole order, in the words of one scholar, of the financial arrangements of the, arrangements of the sacrificial system. And that was an enormous threat to priestly authorities. Because the temple was the place where people were supposed to be able to come and worship the God of Israel. And not just Jews, but non-Jews as well. But because of where these merchants were set up, they were taking up the very space where non-Jews could come and be near the temple so this is how the temple complex was set up. And this is kind of a small diagram again, but that area that says up at the top in that red box, it says the court of the Gentiles, and that area outlined in red, that's the court of the Gentiles. That's where non-Jews could go and be near the temple. And it seems like that is most likely the place where these merchants were set up. And they were actually making it difficult for non-Jewish people to come and be in that space that was actually designated for them to be near the temple at this time. And, and they were all trading and doing that. Now, notice in that little blue box up there, too, it says the Antonia Fortress. Okay, so there's actually a fortress. When Herod, who was before Jesus, built, you know, set about building this temple for the Jewish people, he, as part of his plans, put a, a military garrison attached to the temple. Because, again, the temple is the center of religious, political life, and this was a site where you would have rebellions, riots break out. And so when Herod's building this thing, I was like, okay, we'll give the temples to Jews, but we're also going to make sure that we actually have a, a Gentile military outpost right here to make sure that we can keep this place under control and not have this be a site of an uprising, of an insurrection, of an attempt to overthrow roaming control of the government. Okay, why do I point that out? Because if you are a first century Jew looking for the Messiah— to come, and he walks up to the temple with kind of the posture of, you know, I came here to flip tables and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. You don't expect him to walk into the temple complex and start clearing out Jews who are selling animals for sacrifice. You expect him to go into the Roman fortress and get rid of the Roman occupation force. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't cast the Gentiles out of their fortress. In fact, he casts out Jews who are selling animals to make room for more Gentiles to come in to the temple. And here's kind of just a, a broader kind of illustration of that whole complex. You get kind of the size of it up, up there in the corner is, the, is that military fortress. Jesus doesn't go there. He goes into the temple and casts out the people who are trying to exclude non-Jews from that place. As I was working on this part of the sermon, I couldn't help but think of the story of Ruby Bridges, the first African-American child to desegregate the all-white William Franz Elementary School in Louisiana in November of 1960. And, and few of us know the courage of this brave young girl and all that she had to endure 
to be the first student of color to attend that school. But what it reminded me is that even though the, the law had changed, she was officially permitted to attend that school. The customs and common views of the culture attempted to crowd Ruby out of her school. And in the same way, even though these non-Jews were, they were allowed to be in the temple. They were allowed to be in that temple complex and to come near. Sort of the legalistic, the nationalistic practice of the Jewish people at that time kept Gentiles out, kept them out of the space that God had actually given for them to come near. And Jesus' passionate love for the outsider could not take that anymore which is why he reacts with such zeal, with such passion here. Now, before we go on to ask the question, what does this mean for us? There's another little interpretive question that I think maybe you might find interesting, and that is, if you've read the other gospel accounts, you may remember Jesus' cleansing or clearing of the temple is recorded there, but it happens much later. So if you're reading Matthew or Mark or Luke, they record this account, but it, but it happens at the end, like the Passover week almost, where Jesus is not the Passover at the beginning of his ministry, but the Passover right before he dies on the cross. And so the question is, does Jesus do this one time or does he do this two times? And it's very possible that he just did this one time. This is an important thing to remember when you're reading your Bible, especially in the Gospels, is that the material is not always arranged chronologically. Sometimes the Gospel writers are arranging material thematically, not just in a strict chronology. And even in biographies and that kind of thing today, sometimes an, an author might move an episode up to kind of tell you something about this person that they're going to become as an adult. They'll tell you that even while they're in the kind of the part of the story while they're a kid. So we, we do this even now, but maybe we, so maybe this is happening at the end of Jesus's ministry, but John just records it for us up front. But it is also possible he does this twice. Because again, him doing this wouldn't have been permanent, right? I mean, he clears out the temple, but he's not a very well-known figure. He doesn't spend all of his time in Jerusalem. These people had a major business going. They probably set up shop again in a few days after, after Jesus left. So it's, it's reasonable to think that if he did this early on, that they w- would have moved back in, and he would have been able to do it again later on. Also, one other little clue we have is later on in Jesus' conversation, the Jews are going to say, it took 46 years to build this temple, and we know roughly when that temple construction began, and so that's a slight tip that this happens earlier. 46 years would be an earlier date rather than a later date toward the very end of Jesus' life. But again, whether it happens once or it happens twice, it's shocking, certainly to the people in the first century and to us as well, especially given the contrast of what has just come before. So what are we to make about what this event reveals about who Jesus is? Again, the key question is, how does this episode help us to believe in Jesus? Why did John include this moment here? How is what Jesus is doing here good news for you and me? If I could say it in one sentence, it would be this, that Jesus zealously makes God accessible to everyone, no matter the cost. This passage is good news because Jesus makes God accessible, zealously makes him accessible to everyone, no matter what the cost. So let's explore that idea a little bit more. It's Jesus' conversation with the Jewish religious establishment that reveals the true meaning and significance of this event. So look down at verse 18. John says this, So the Jews said to him, Now when you read the language of the Jews in the Gospel of John in particular, 
Jesus is not re- or John is not referring to all Jewish people in general, but specifically to the ruling uh, kind of authorities, the religious and political establishment within Judaism. So John has a very kind of technical usage of this language, the Jews. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? And then John adds this, and this is the key to the whole passage. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now there are a handful of key themes that kind of hold the whole story of the Bible together from Genesis to Revelation. And if you don't grasp those themes, it can actually make it hard to understand the whole story of Scripture. The theme of temple is one of those themes. And it doesn't just appear here in the New Testament. It actually is all the way back on page one of your Bible. Because in Genesis chapter two, after God has created all the heavens and the earth, he plants a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he puts these two image-bearing creatures that he's made, Adam and Eve, into that garden. And that garden is the first temple. Because the idea of the temple of the tabernacle is it's a place where God's space and human space overlaps, where God and his people dwell together, where you can come and meet with God and be in relationship with him. So the Garden of Eden is that first place. But we know, and, and also I should note this, the Garden of Eden, the temple, is also the place where you come and you get God's life. So it's in the Garden of Eden that they eat from the tree of life, they're fed by God's life, and they live but also in the Garden of Eden, there's this tree of the knowledge of good and bad, the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, they choose to define good and bad on their own. They choose to reject God's wisdom, to take that on their own. And so they, they are exiled outside of the garden. But God continues to pursue his people. He provides Moses an ark, which is also kind of like a miniature temple, Eden space, preserving Noah and his family through the judgment of the flood. Then God selects Abraham, and Abraham has a son Isaac, who has a son Jacob, and Jacob and his family end up in Egypt, and they end up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, until God raises up Moses, who carries and leads his people out of Egypt. They go out into the desert, they come to Mount Sinai, and God comes down on the top of Mount Sinai, and he reveals himself to Moses. He gives his people the law, and he gives them the plans for something called the tabernacle which is a tent that is set up very much like those diagrams that I just showed you of the temple because the temple's modeled on that. And the temple, this tabernacle, becomes the place where God and his people meet together, where God dwells in the midst of his people. And it becomes the place where you get your sins forgiven, where you meet God, and where you receive your life from God. So fast forward to now David is the next key character in this story who makes Jerusalem the capital city. 
And his son Solomon then builds a permanent building that functions as the temple. So no longer is it just a tent that's moved around while they are wandering in the desert. Now there's a permanent building, the temple. But again, the Israelites, just like all of us, they replay that Garden of Eden story again, and they define good and evil on their own. They reject God's wisdom, which leads them to be uh, eventually conquered by the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire. And that temple is wiped out and destroyed until 70 years later, the empire of, of Persia comes into power and allows the Jews to return back to their homeland, and they begin to build the temple. It's kind of, it's a disappointment compared to the, the Solomon's temple, but then Herod comes and, and builds this temple that Jesus is standing in. Okay, so I've just kind of walked through like two-thirds of your Bible with that temple theme. But it's so significant because what Jesus is saying is that I am the true and better temple. This is why the religious officials get so outraged when Jesus forgives sins because that's what you do to the temple. You brought sacrifices to the temple to get your sins forgiven. And Jesus is saying, I am the new and better temple. You get forgiveness of sins in relationship with me. The place where heaven and, over, and earth overlap, the place where you come to meet God, the place where you are in relationship with God is in me. I'm the temple, the temple of my body. I mean, humanly speaking, this is one of the reasons that Jesus is killed by the Jewish officials is that he is challenging the temple in the very place that you get forgiveness of sins. So Jesus walks into this place and disrupts business as usual as a signal that the whole structure is being replaced. Jesus is saying that everyone can now come to me. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to have a certain kind of sacrifice. You come to me. I am the true sacrifice. I am the true temple. Jesus is clearing away every barrier so that anyone and everyone can come to him. That's the meaning of this moment. So, so why does this matter for us in 2022 in Kansas City, where I don't think most of us are trying to bring sacrifices to a temple in Jerusalem to get our sins forgiven? What is the significance of this moment? First of all, quickly, just here's how we shouldn't understand this passage. Let's do that, and then we'll talk about how do we apply this today. So, so first of all, how not to apply this. First of all, again, we shouldn't just take this as, wait, Jesus did this, I can do this too. Jesus flipped over some tables, he got mad, that's, I, I can go do that too. I mean, Jesus did this at most twice in his life. This is, even for Jesus, this is a rare thing. So if this defines you and your posture all the time, you've probably missed it, right? Second of all, this is not reactionary. Jesus isn't just always walking around with a whip ready to cast things out, and, and, you know, he doesn't have, like, a concealed carry whip permit, and he's always ready to go, right? No, he stops and makes the whip, which means this is a calculated action. It's, he's, it's not reactionary. He's in he's total control, and it's true with the whip as well. This is not cruel. This is not, Jesus isn't whipping humans, right? But if you're going to, I don't know how many of you have spent time with livestock. I've not spent a lot of time with livestock, but you know, cows, sheep, these are big animals. You're not going to move a cow with just like suggesting gently that it moves, right? That's what the whip is for. But Jesus is not bloodying people <laughs> with the whip. He's using this to move these large animals. That's just, that's how you move the large animals out, right? And, and it is also, I mean, it's true. This is, this is kind of a, an enacted parable. It's, it's Jesus is acting out a parable of judgment in this place because he is the Messiah. And this is a key principle whenever you're reading your Bible, especially in the Gospels, but in anywhere in the Bible, is what 
is being recorded, is it just being described for us? Or is it being prescribed as something we ought to do? That's one of the major areas we can go wrong in Bible interpretation is confusing prescriptive and descriptive events. Is the Bible just telling us something that happened or is it telling us something that happened and that we should go and do likewise? It's always a question that you need to ask. Is this just being described or is it being prescribed? You can think back to last week with water into wine. Jesus has described doing this miracle of turning water into wine. We don't typically have a problem thinking, okay, gosh, now I need to go figure out how I can turn water into wine too. But wouldn't that be great? Jesus is being described as doing this here, but it's not necessarily a prescription of, of, well, this is exactly how we should do as well. But what is the relevance of this event for our life? That's the question we want to ask. I think there are at least two implications for our Monday lives. The first one is this, that Jesus is zealous for you to believe in him. Jesus is zealous for you to believe in him. Uh, That's how this passage is good news for you and for me and for anyone on the outside looking in who feels like they don't belong, who feels like they aren't wanted, who feels like they are excluded, who feels like they are worthless. I think a lot of us, if we were really honest about the self-talk that goes in our own minds, would say that we are worthless, no matter how successful we may look on the outside. Jesus has made space for you. He clears away the barriers that prevent you from coming to him. Those that have been set up by others, those that have been set up by yourself, sometimes those are the most powerful ones. God could never love me. God could never forgive me. Yeah, sure, Bill, you can say, God forgives me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the kinds of things I've thought, the things that I've, I've committed. He clears away all of those things. Jesus zealously makes God accessible to everyone, no matter the cost. And the way that we access that is not by having some kind of good record of performance, not by having a list of things that we've not done, or a list of things we have done, or a list of good things that we've done that outweighs or or is longer than the list of the bad things that we've done. The way that we access this is through belief, through faith, through trust in Jesus. But of course, the question that I was, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because I think in our cultural context, we, we use the language of belief, and we can often use that as like, I, well, I believe a proposition is true, but that doesn't necessarily affect me personally, right? So you could say, I believe that air travel is safe, and yet still be afraid of flying and never get on an airplane. You can cognitively assent to, yes, I've seen the statistics that, that flying on a plane is safer than driving in a car, but you're not going to get me on air. I believe the air travel is safe, but I'm not actually going to get onto an airplane. So what does it mean to actually believe in Jesus then? Well, I think here is a great example, actually in the text that we have right here. In verse 23 and, and on through 25, Jesus gives us an example. John shows us of people believing, and the language he uses helps us to understand what it means to believe. So verse 23, now when Jesus, he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And there's now a contrast, but Jesus on his part did not entrust, see how the ESV translates word, did not entrust, it's the exact same word as believe above, 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So John's point is, look, Jesus is not going to entrust himself to this crowd of people because he knows what's in their heart. He knows that ultimately they don't have God's kingdom in mind. But it's such a fascinating use and even how translators have to translate that same word of, of faith or belief because it wouldn't make sense for it to be, many believed in his name when they saw him doing these signs, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. Like, he didn't believe they exist. No, the idea of belief is this idea of allegiance, of trust, of committing yourself to someone fully. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not just believe that he exists, not believe in some abstract sense that he can forgive sins, but that you actually get on the plane. Not that you believe air travel is safe, we'll never fly, but you believe air travel is safe and you entrust yourself to the pilot and the engineers who built that thing. It's a matter of allegiance. Committing yourself fully to a person. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? He knows what is in your heart and he loves and he cares for you anyway. Will you entrust yourself to him today? That, that's the first thing. Uh, here's the second implication for Monday, that Jesus wants you to be zealous for others to believe in him also. Which means that part of that work is that we have to remove the unbiblical uh, barriers, beliefs, and structures, and obstacles that might prevent others from coming to faith. Are there things that we have put in place, cultural habits, practices, that are not core to the gospel, but that it become just sort of what we do that might actually make it hard for others to believe. Because here's the thing, it's so easy as human beings, and this is just natural, like we live in a culture, we have a culture to do things our way, but to sort of subtly baptize that as the right way, the only way. Maybe it's how long you sing, or whether you clap, or whether you don't clap, and we, all these kinds of things that happen in worship services, right? Or any other parts of life. Our tendency is to say, I want people to believe in Jesus, and also, we don't state this, but implicitly, and I want them to do it like I do it. But the gospel is all about, not like other people becoming more like us, but all people becoming more like Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are there practices or things that, actually, this isn't core to the gospel, and actually, if we change this, it might make it way easier for a whole new set of people to come in and believe that happened before. Again, the goal is not to have people become exactly like us and practice their faith exactly like us, but for us all to become more faithful in following Jesus together. And here's the thing, though. We don't work up that zeal, that passion to have other people come on our own. That passion, that love for others to come and experience the life that we experience in Jesus is born out of the experience of being loved and known and forgiven and transferred by Jesus' love and his passion and his zeal for us. When you see how passionately Jesus pursued you, then it begins to make you into the kind of person who, who wants that for others. Because Jesus' passion took him all the way to the cross. John says the disciples remembered when they saw Jesus doing that zeal for your house will consume me. 
that language of consume, it's most often used in the Old Testament just for the act of eating. Eating is, is totally eating something up, consuming it completely. And on the cross, Jesus is consumed completely. He's consumed completely so that you wouldn't be so that you could have life in his name. He is the new and better temple, but he's also the new and better sacrifice who is completely consumed to finally and completely deal with the problem of sin, to set us free from our enslavement, to set us free to life that is truly life. And to do this, he gave his own life for us so that you and I and everyone from every tribe and tongue and language and culture and sexual background and orientation and gender might have the opportunity to find life that is true life in him and to experience the transformation that comes from living into his design for all things. Have you received that life? Are you praying and seeking and inviting others to find that life too?